Welcome to What a Word is Worth. This is a space for creative minds to speak about viable ways to heal the world through writing and other inventive mediums. This is your host, Marianela Medrano. I am the founder of Palabra Center, where words are giving us medicine. And today, uh, my guest is a sister. Um, I recently found her, but she is a true sister, Nana Brew Hammond. She is the author of Power Necklace and Blue, and I am totally in love with Blue. And she also writes poetry and essays. So welcome, Nana. Thank you so much for having me. And I just want to say that I love the name of your podcast. That is such a beautiful way of just kind of, I don't know, tapping into the power of writing and, you know, words. So I don't know, maybe I'm biased because I'm a writer, but I love it. <laughs> but that, it's, it's that idea, right? That there is, um, there is a lot of worth in words. So, um, so, okay, speaking of that, do you subscribe to the idea, the core idea behind this podcast that words and writing are healing balms, I said, and how young did you discover that if you say, yes, of course? Yes, absolutely. I subscribe to the idea that words are so powerful and words I mean we often talk about how words can hurt and harm but I love that your focus is on healing mm -hmm. and um, I absolutely feel that um, writing is something that um, heals in so many different ways but and we'll talk about that I'm sure as we get into it but um, yeah when I was a kid um, for me writing was very healing just to you know be able to just put things down on paper that I was thinking or feeling. Um, and also reading, mm -hmm. reading was incredibly healing to me. Um, I didn't often find like books that were about people like me, but even just escaping into some other world mm -hmm. and just connecting and learning and having, it felt like I had this like portal into another mm -hmm. world. And so that was incredibly healing um, as a kid for me. So yeah finding those books. So um, let's talk a, a more about that than not finding, because that's, that's a, an experience that marked me as well, not finding um, resemblance in the characters that I was reading as a kid. And Actually, I started writing children's literature because I didn't want my son to have the same experience. Um, so tell me more about realizing or not finding you and when did that change for you? You know, um, it's so funny because I think when you're a kid, you're not necessarily processing it in that way or mm -hmm. I didn't. It was more like, I just accepted, sadly, that like, oh, on television, in books, mm -hmm. in movies, um, I wasn't going to see a Black person. Or if I did see a Black person, 
um, it was going to be a very specific type of black person, either a comedian or, you know, I don't know, something, a very sort of um, stereotypical kind of role. And I remember, um, I mean, I think maybe the Cosby show was one of the things that was really big growing up for me when I was growing up. And I remember wanting to be an obstetrician gynecologist <laughs> because I don't know. And like, looking back, I'm like, I'm very squeamish. I hate the sight of blood, but I would just be like, yes, I'm going to be pre-med because I had that to, you know, that was something that I saw. Yeah. Um, but I think um, what was interesting for me is that um, one, I think that when I was reading books that did not resemble myself, um, I still kind of took those stories to be something that could plausibly be my own. Now, the negative part of it is, so I would love, so I would write because I was like, oh, I wanna recreate the story. I know I can do this. Mm -hmm. And the sad thing is when I was very young, I would write stories and it would always be about a white character. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time, I don't know if someone asked me or I, I was asking myself, but I was like, why am I always writing it? And this was like, by the time I was in college. Mm -hmm. And then I remember thinking, and I remember the, my answer was, oh, but white people have so much more color. Like they've got red hair, they've got this, they've got that. And then I realized, wait a minute, like, no, like, <laughs> and that was, I think it was in college that I really began to interrogate mm -hmm why I just had this sort of natural, like, oh, if I'm gonna write, because those were the stories that were sort of embedded in my in my brain. Um, so that was like a big shift for me. And I, I ended up studying political science and Africana studies. <laughs> so- <I> woke up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Basically I woke up. Mm -hmm. Wow, yes. And, and you know what I'm thinking? Yes, it is true. The awareness doesn't come until much later what I I remember, and I think you and I spoke about this in a previous conversation, uh, feeling the sense of deficit or the sense of I'm not okay based on the characters and how they were depicted and I didn't have the, the qualities. So, but at the same time, that's the blessing, right? Like it, it, it does something to you then, it, it little by little awakens then the need to, to then come out. I think your character does that. Yeah, I think, I think that's so true. I think, and it's so funny because yeah, there's like this sort of in, in, innate feeling that like there's something wrong. Like my life doesn't look that way. My family is not set up that way. My school doesn't look like that. So therefore I am less than, and you know, I think everybody deals with it differently. And I think that for me as a kid, yeah, I definitely felt like, whoa, I don't see myself. And the interesting thing for me was that um, when I did see a black character, I was like, this is amazing. But what I would find is that it was a certain kind of black character. And I was like, there's so much more mm -hmm. um, to like, cause I'm like growing up in a neighborhood where my neighbors are from Panama and, and from, you know, Jamaica and from all of these different places. And I'm like, okay, I don't see that story either. Mm -hmm. And so that was something that um, 
you know, I, I wanted to expose myself more to. And I, and that ended up happening too, when I like went to college and realized like, oh, there's, <laughs> there's Caribbean literature, there's African literature, you know? And, and it's funny too, because I say all of this and my parents, like my dad, especially, he had like Aikwe Arma's, um, the beautiful ones are not yet born in our, in our, bookcase but for whatever reason those books didn't call me and it was only like I, I feel like again college I came back home once and I'm like whoa you have all these books here <laughs> and I didn't even notice them well we all want to belong right and if the narrative is this so we want to lean on that and um yeah it's it's that's what being socialized um, but let's go to um, your children's book, Blue, um, which, uh, as I said, it truly enchanted me. It's such a, a beautiful book and, and, and such a beautiful rendition, uh, both, as I said to you, the, um, the images and, and also what you did with taking information that could be dry, even though what you were, what you talk about in the book is fascinating, but there is a risk of the material being dry. That doesn't happen in the book at all. So tell us about the process, the birth of this book. How did you get to, um, why the interest in the color blue? Yeah, it's so I it it's so funny because um yeah, when I when I think back to the whole like even pitching this the book <laughs> and I remember being like I I was just so fascinated by what I learned and and how it all came to be is one day I was just reading the Bible and it was it mentioned that there was um the, the temple furnishings in King Solomon's temple. And it mentioned that there was a blue curtain or a blue veil, mm -hmm. um, actually blue, red, and purple. And when I saw the color blue, I said, why does it matter? Why are you mentioning blue? So mm -hmm. I, as I was reading, I like, I was on my phone and I just kind of just started Googling around. And I saw that um, I came across an, a weird tidbit that there was a snail in antiquity that was used to, um, that was harvested um, to create blue dye. And I said, what? That doesn't even make any sense. So I, I was like, maybe Google is just making stuff up. So I found a book, it's called The Rarest Blue by um, a, a couple, it's called their Baruch and Judy Sturman. Mm -hmm. And it's a fascinating account of the history of the color blue, but it, it delves a lot into this snail, because the snail is very important in Judaism and um, it was used to dye um, uh, sort of different vestments that are used by the priests and whatnot. So I said, oh my goodness. And so then a friend of mine, her name is Catherine McKinley. She had written a book called Indigo mm -hmm. um, about her time um, researching the history of Indigo um, and its impact in Africa in West Africa um, specifically. And so I had read the book already. So I said, wait a minute, let me go back to her book again. And so I reread that book and I was just like, oh my goodness. And I just couldn't stop 
So I, I started gathering all as much information as I could. And I was just so bowled over by the history. And that's really what kind of, it was just in my head. And I said, wow, kids need to know about this. And so I kind of, I just wrote a poem. Mm-hmm. I wrote a poem to myself and I laugh now because I wrote it sort of in the in the voice of like a boozy auntie. I was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be like an auntie telling my nieces and cousins, children like about this. Um, and so I wrote this funny poem and I kind of, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And I said, you know, kids really need to know this. And so I pitched it to my agent at the time and they said, oh, this is so cool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so then we kind of, they, they gave me some notes on it and then, you know, time passed. We ended up um, parting ways, not because of anything, but because we were working on something else and it just didn't um, come to fruition. And so um, I pitched a bunch of children's book agents um, and then one got back to me and said, this is amazing. You know, we need to tweak this and tweak that and make it more because I'd never written a children's book. Mm. And then I did it and then he sold it. And that's the story. And I'm so glad he did (laughs) because again, it's it's a a gorgeous book, but I'm just, um, I just opened one of my favorite pages here. And one thing that I'm, a recurring theme that I see in you is your preoccupation for history and for telling history the right way and the social aspect. Um, so the on this page, which is so beautiful, do you have the book with you? I do. I do. Let me let me grab it from my bookcase. Okay. Yeah, I love that. I love that page as well. Yes, because I want you, I mean, the image is gorgeous and we'll talk more about um, the illustrator and and that relationship. But can you, do you mind reading those two? Yeah, absolutely. I'll read that page. So it says, we feel blue when we're sad, perhaps because the people who had to dig, grind and grow passed down their painful memories of working the mines or of slavery on indigo plantations. Africans enslaved in America sang prayers that sounded like tears. The songs were called spirituals and they inspired a style of music called the blues, originally known for its aching words and melodies. So beautiful, so much poetry in the telling, right? And that's that's what fascinates me about the book, how something that could be, you know, very matter of fact, you just dress it up (laughs) in such a beautiful way. The images, I mean, I remember, do you remember how crazy I got when I first saw your book? Yeah. Uh, The illustrations. What is your, how do you feel every time you look at these illustrations? You know, it's so funny because, um, you know, you, as a writer, most of the time, this is my first children's picture book. So I've never written with the the idea that it was going to be illustrated. And so when I got the first few um, images came in through my editor, I was in tears. When I saw this particular image, the one that's on, I think, page two yes of the the girl's hands cupping the water yes I just said oh my goodness because you never I mean I didn't know what to expect 
And um, it was, it just brought tears to my eyes. And yeah, yeah, I mean, it just, I think the whole book, it, you can just see that the illustrator just brought such intense passion to each page Mm -hmm. Um, and each image just is just sings. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's beyond my wildest imagination and to and because I had I had sat with the book for a long time before because it's a long process with children's book mm-hmm. um, publishing or at least in my experience it was mm-hmm. and um, in my mind I had envisioned it being more about like watercolor because mm-hmm. I thought like there's so many shades of blue and it's you know I talk a lot about the water and so I envisioned it to be sort of in that vein and what he produced is so much richer and so much deeper and so much fuller. And we did not collaborate because in children's book land, which I didn't know about, they we each work separately. And so he just had the words and he interpreted it in himself. But what I began to notice is that um, there is a sense of water um, in the sort of, that's a subtle, um, feeling on some of the pages. And so there's just something so powerful about the connection that we didn't even have until, <laughs> until we, we only, we've only spoken about the process together once. It's unbelievable because there is such a correspondence, such a perfect, such fluidity, right? Between the images and the writing that, that is amazing. Um, and then you have told me you have taken this book, um, you have worked with children and they really get into yes. the experience. What are the most common themes, the, the most common questions that children uh, bring up? You know, it's funny because I don't know that there are, well, one of the things that um boys of a certain age often bring up is the fact that lapis lazuli, which I talk about in the book, is in Minecraft. <laughs> so in the video game, Minecraft. So that is funny to me because they, they're, they're like, yes, it's <laughs> the desert, it's rare. They use it as charms. And I'm like, this is amazing. They've made this. Like, thing. don't you know this? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so I love that. Um, but it it's what I find is that depending on the age group, because I, I, I speak to kids um, from kindergarten through fifth grade. Mm-hmm. So obviously that's a big, um, you know, there's a big gap in what they, um, and how they comprehend the book. Mm-hmm. Um, younger kids tend to uh, quickly associate like, oh, well, that's blue, that's mm-hmm. blue, that's blue. And then they, it seems as if for them, like, the world comes alive, like the, all the blue around them comes alive to them in a different way. Um, they really like, um, one of the things they really like is the snail, this idea that there's a snail that can be harvested. Um, they also um, think it's funny that um, the part of the process of making indigo requires urine. <laughs> so they're like, oh my goodness, urine pee? So, you know, they, they have a chuckle about that. Um, so in essence, I think for the younger kids, they are very sort of fascinated by the production of the color. The older kids, um, get, um, are very sort of perturbed and saddened by 
um, all of the sort of brutality that is, ha has been part of the production. Um, one, one young lady said to me, I mean, so do you mean to tell me that just so that we could have a color, people were, you know, enslaved and people were, you know, brutalized. And it was really, um, it was funny because when, when we left, um, the, the parent who was a friend of mine that, you know, got me, helped me set up that, um, event, um, said to me, well, her, her mom is a lawyer, so she's, <laughs> she's gonna, you know, she's very, yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly, but so many, I mean, a lot of kids, um, talk about that, like, a lot of the, like, fourth and fifth graders, they're just disturbed by the brutality, mm -hmm. um, of it, and, um, yeah, and that's the importance, right, to create these things, and especially, I mean, because children are so capable and because they can see these things, it's important to write these kind of, of literature for them, that you're not watering, watering things down or doming it down because they catch it, as, as you said. Um, so let's let's jump to uh, Powder Necklace um, and your your main character, Lila, who delights us with a what I call a very spirited voice. Uh, the world, or as she shows to us, is sometimes very opaque and then bright at the same time. Like at least that's the reading I'm getting. That this this um, character is giving me uh, alternative um, ways to look. When I examine though the emotional fabric you unfold in this novel, I see collective trauma for the specifically one, the loss of fathers, the loss of fathers throughout the world, actually. Um, her father, for a great part of the read, um, it's just the voice on the other side that she's not, not, not always able to access and sometimes has to sneak around to access the voice. Um, and then we also have the conflicted relationship with her and her mother, but that's separate. I want to stay with the idea of the lost father. And at the end, when you finish writing this novel, were you aware of what I'm saying? And do you agree that this is, you know, the big theme here with the father it is, you know, a traumatic thread that goes through so many, um, you know, um, histories and peoples throughout the world. Were you aiming at that or am I, well, I, I have the freedom, right? To yes. Whatever I want about it. That's right. You know, it's funny. Um, I wasn't thinking about, that wasn't at the forefront. I think what I was thinking more of was this idea of, um, the, the trauma of not having an open communication. So the secrets oh. that, or the barriers to a free flowing communication that um, leaves everyone un misunderstood mm -hmm. or not understood at all. 
-hmm. And so I think for this young lady, she is living with her mother and not understanding yeah. one, what her mother is going through two why her mother chooses to present the world to her in that way, why her mother constricts her in certain ways. And then she doesn't know why she can't access her father, but she understands sort of instinctively. That she has to do something. Exactly. And I think that, um, so on the one end, on, the, on one hand, there's something like that speaks to, I guess, our, our collective ability to survive, to push through, to find our way, right? But there's also this, um, there's a sadness that, um, you know, if, if it was handled differently, mm -hmm. I think everyone would feel much freer <laughs> if it was handled differently, but it wasn't. And so I think that that is something that um, is there. So, and, and there's, I think culturally, um, I remember um, just growing up often hearing this kind of, I don't know if this is something that's unique to Ghana, but it was, you know, children are to be seen and not heard. Yes. And so, yes. yeah, it's, it's something that's there, yeah, in many cultures. Yeah. And so this idea that, you know, something is going on, but you, if to, to ask a question about it is to be disrespectful, is to be rude, is to be, you know, yeah. and that track and that keeps going because it's, it's something obviously that the parents have also been told and socialized into. And so there's this kind of um, pain that keeps going down the, each generation and no one is able to talk about it for fear of breaking some code. Um, and so therefore there's a lot of um, woundedness that um, happens that is not, um, is not being addressed. And then you just kind of live with it and you live with those scars and ultimately that hurts you end up hurting other people around you because you haven't tended to your own pain. Absolutely. And, and you know, um, again, there is so much in the um, emotional fabric that you display uh, that, you know, the intergenerational trauma that, that, that gets passed down. But the, 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 the other thing, if we were to lift up uh, Lila's pain, what we're gonna find is abandonment. If we lift up her mother's pain, there is abandonment there too. Um, so abandonment is one of the most troublesome markers in relationships. And we come from relational mindset, you and I. So, how big is the size of this trauma that we're talking about from your perspective? I mean, it's funny. I mean, I, I haven't actually thought about it in those stark of terms, but I think that's very true what you're saying. I think that um, one of the things that's interesting, I think about the book is that the abandonment is different. Like it, like it's not, um, you know, when we think of abandonment, classic abandonment is I, I left you somewhere, I threw you somewhere and I did that. But um, what you've brought up that makes me think is that there's so many ways that you can abandon someone. Absolutely. You can be physically present and abandon someone, right? And so, and I think about the fact that like in this particular instance, 
This girl is being abandoned in the sense of being sent to a culture that she is not intimate with because she hasn't grown up in it. And then she's further sent to a school where mm -hmm. she's on her own. Mm -hmm. And that happens to so many, um, you know, to so many kids and to so many um, people. And some of it is part of the cultural fabric. And it's, mm -hmm. it's meant to, it's meant with good intention, right? Like to, to toughen you up, to help you to know how to survive, to help you to do all those things. But, um, but there is a cost. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a cost attached to it because in those very sort of delicate years mm -hmm. of a person growing up, you know, they're not with the people who maybe can help them, you know, deal with some of the angst that comes with that time. Yeah. And then I think also too, because the mother herself has been abandoned or feels abandoned, she she almost that's her her survival is that she needs to abandon her daughter to get to what she needs to do for herself right hence what happens right yeah. uh, she goes away and then well i don't want to give away the novel yeah 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 read it but um you know the other thing and and this is you know the psychologist of me i can't help it um but I think that the, the value here is how you are able to, to portray these important um, aspects of um, the human emotion. Uh, for instance, the way I see the, her, the relationship with the father and the mother is what in psychology we call ambiguous grief, which mm -hmm. is this grief that you know, the person is alive, but untouchable. So we go through ambiguous grief with a divorce, with any form of separation, right? There is this total disconnection, but then you know that the person is breathing and existing. Mm -hmm. So that to me, is, it, it comes out so clearly that there are parts of the novel that I feel, you know, I do poetry therapy and part of what we do is um, kind of dissect, look for pieces, literary pieces that can awaken a, a recognition in people that they can read it and say, ah, I know that, mm. right? To elicit kind of a sympathetic resonance. So when I read some of the parts of the book, I was like, oh my God, this is ambiguous grief. Mm. And then, um, you know, were you, do you agree with me? Like, is it okay for me to use it like that? First of all, absolutely. And secondly, like, I'm like, I know, I'm like, <laughs> you're making me sound so smart. No, I, I wasn't thinking of that. But I do think it's funny, because it's something um, that I, I have been pondering just in general, um, this idea of, um, what happens when you lose contact with someone, with a friend that, you know, there's a rupture. And like you're saying, there's, it's a grief that we don't, I guess maybe you talk about it because you are a psychologist, but it's something that socially, we don't often really delve into how painful it is when a friendship is broken. Right. And there is a, but we, we don't have like an, an um, a system in place to mourn those kinds of things, right? Like if, if a person dies, 
you know, there's a whole morning ritual that's that surrounds it. But what happens, like you're saying, and so I love that you there. I mean, they, you're a professional, so I'm glad you do have that. Um, that, and I, I want to learn more about this idea of ambiguous grief. Yeah. Um, well, it's very clearly demarcated in your book, yeah. um, so we can we can definitely talk. Um, and you know, and it it comes more real when she goes to New York. It's like the father is a stranger. Then the the siblings there are strangers too. The father's wife. So this kid is like in this environment with people, and the same thing. Oops, I'm giving away a lot. <laughs> um, but a lot of her encounters are that where she is, people are there, but they're unreachable, um, emotional. And even her mom, Felicia, is like, um, sort of like she doesn't know how to love. So yeah. she loves through doing. So there yeah. is so much here. So our cultures, yours and mine, are, of course, intertwined. So I am not surprised to find so many familiar references. Um, I was cracking up when I read about the, the uploading of landing. Yeah. Like, because that's us. Um, or the idea of a boy's hands spoiling a girl's body I mean that was the litany you know <laughs> that I will hear so uh this idea right that this kid is playing a video game and that was her sentence like that was the the reason right of the the exile that that she was so but I was laughing uh, the fact that you use your novel, I think what sets it apart is that you use these, let's call it trivial elements as antecedents to what I see as ambiguous grief. Mm. That's the beauty. Like, okay, yeah, okay, yes, I know that we do these things. But then the next thing, the next place you take me it's a very deep place. It's not just that the mother was harsh and like, no, there is a lot here. Um, so how does it feel now? You said that you didn't know, but so how does it feel now to know that you put words to, to these, you know, these, these, emotions and feelings that are so important for people to to have words for I mean actually I mean it makes me it makes me uh, grateful that you know that it has that resonance it also makes me teary because mm -hmm. I think about so many um there's so many layers of pain mm -hmm. that like you know I mean everybody in the world walks around with some sort of wound yeah. And, um, and and the unconscious ways that we pass these wounds on. So yes. it makes me sad for just thinking about that. But but I like, um, but I'm glad that I, I'm so, I, what I'm grateful about is that I had the opportunity to, um, 
depict this because I know that I remember growing up, there were so many um, instances of, you know, our, you know, our parents were immigrants, they were hardworking, and there were so many um, things they were dealing with that we, of course, as children had no insight into. And um, I remember one of the refrains amongst all of, you know, my aunties and uncles, the family friends was like, if you misbehave, we're going to send you to, you know, Ghana. <laughs> and um, just, you know, <laughs> it gives me a lot of empathy for, um, for them and what, the, and especially now that I'm older and I can imagine what it's like to leave your home country, come to the United States, struggle in New York City, you know, raise kids that you don't really understand because they are becoming Americanized and you're from a different culture. And so I just feel overwhelmed with sort of empathy for, for them and also empathy for the children that we were. Mm -hmm. um, but there was also lots of good things. A lot of, a lot, a lot of beauty, that is true. Uh, but in terms of helping people, you know, navigate these things, when I find a novel like yours and even Blue, you know, a children's story that I can actually use, like the, the page that I, I asked you to read is perfectly a piece that we can use um, with helping grown-ups articulate some of the hurt, some of the... Um, you know, the, the, the historical wounds that we carry. So what the, again, the beauty though, because your, your books are not, you know, they're not like psychological, that we can't even call it psychological. What is the, the, the term? Um, your, your intention is not to do that, but you are able to name things that are important for us to know and to do it with the beauty and sophistication that a writer should have and well, should thank you. <laughs> um, thank you. Thank you. I just I think for me, my goal is to just try to be as truthful as possible or as truthful as I know how to be. And I think that sometimes especially with books for young people, there's the idea that you have to, you know, speak, you know, even when you're talking to children, people think they have to like change the sound of their voice and, you know, dumb themselves down. And I, I know that when I was a kid, um, I gravitated towards adult things. <laughs> I wanted to hear what the adults were talking about. And mm -hmm. I wanted to, and I understood a lot of things, even though I didn't, maybe understand that I didn't have the experience to sort of contextualize, but I understood what some things were, were happening. And so I think with blue, I really thought kids should know this about the color that they pick up from their crayon box, mm -hmm. not so that they can feel that this is a negative thing. You know, don't, I don't wanna use the color blue because there's brutality attached to it but rather that um, life is full of wonder mm -hmm. and life is also full of, you know, you know, there's a balance with everything. Absolutely. And knowing this history, mm -hmm. um, to me, I think 
it should it should one give you an appreciation for the fact that you have this color in your hand because we mm -hmm. sometimes get so disconnected from production especially mm -hmm. in, in western culture because everything is in the in the store you pick it up and you use it and you don't even think about where it came from but mm -hmm. i also think that um it gives you an appreciation for where it came from but it also gives you an appreciation for what you can do with it mm -hmm. and what can come next because these are the things that happened behind us what are we going to do with it now yeah yeah so so yes definitely the job i think part of the um moral obligation of a respectful writer again is to find these universal themes and say it in a way that is still fascinating but that is conveying and and you 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 achieve that in these two books that, that we are saying. Another familiar theme in the novel is the, the, the idea of cultural shock, right? Like, oh my God, the poor kid is like, uh, she experiences in, in, in all fronts, right? When she goes to Ghana and then she's the outsider among her own people there, then coming back home. And the culture, the home culture has been shifted. So she has to, she's in shock there and, and, and she has to go to that process. Then we know some, another commotion happens. So she's forced to grow. What I, where I'm going with that question, do you remember how was that process of writing the young Lila, uh, let's say, right, she was in the cost of puberty and then she turns into an adolescent, teenage. Um, how, what was that process? Because one of the things, again, you do these without falling into stereotypical descriptions. It's not boring. Mm. So what was that process for you? What was the, do you remember when you said, okay, the kid is growing and, you know, things that happened to her, like, yeah, I just tried, like I said, I just tried to be true to the process of like growing up as a girl, like mm -hmm. there's things that happen to us as girls that are like, you know, you get your period and and it's so uncomfortable because it's like, wait a minute, like one minute I'm like, I think especially with a girl, you go from, I don't know, just being a kid to suddenly like there's, my breasts are growing and my, and you feel so self-conscious and you feel uncomfortable talking about it. It feels taboo to talk about it with people and in school it's giggled about and also it's like oh this person has big boobs I don't have my boobs yet like there's so many things that are going on and so I wanted to kind of I feel like when you're at that weird age and it's not I shouldn't call it weird when you're at that sensitive age where your body is changing and that's where Lila is and then her her world is is like changing cataclysmically you know um, not once, like as you know, but, but sort of multiple shifts are happening as she's having all of these shifts internally. Um, 
puberty, at a, you know, adolescence, I think um, I just wanted to just honor the fact that like, there's something, I wanted to honor the fact that in this specific universe of this girl's life, she does not, she's put in situations where she does not have control of her life. Um, and it's incredibly destabilizing for her. And um, it's uncomfortable for her while she's going through all of the sort of discomfort of puberty. But what happens is she, for better or for worse, is forced to find an anchor for herself and a center for herself that, I mean, the book ends, but I like to believe that ultimately she kind of, she grows into a person that is, has a center that can't really um, be toppled because she's gone through this unfortunate sort of like <laughs> dizzying shifts um, mm -hmm. at one of the most sensitive times in her life. Right. And um, she will have issues because, you know, she, <laughs> this is traumatic, but I think in the end, she's, she is, she is going to emerge as a very strong person. And that I get from the beginning. And one of the things I recently interviewed um, Stephanie Feta, who wrote a book, the book Shaming into Brown, and she works a lot with, um, uh, you know, embodiment and somatics and the way she does it, like she goes through um, literary uh, books and kind of thesis apart these things. So that, um, it was fascinating to talk to her because that's part of what I pay attention myself. So, you know, I, this interview was recently and then I was reading your novel and of course I was like looking for these things. So again, talking about, and I want you to hear me because I think this is something so beautiful that, that you did. As I said before, you highlight social injustices here very well. And you do it through very innovative means. The somatics, as I just said, is just there. From the beginning, this kid, this itch in her armpits, like, oh my goodness, right? Is directing me to so much. But who will... Who will think about, like, only Nana? <laughs> that she gets this itch on her armpit that follows her, right? So there is this somatic awareness that, 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 that is there, that is so vivid, right? So we immediately, from the beginning, when she's at the airport and she's getting this thing, right? we know that something is uh, it's at odd here. That's first. You're not telling us that. You're just telling us that the kid gets this itch in her armpit. Then you go through this idea of um, the, the guys with the body order. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But then you don't leave it there. It goes to the water. Who gets the water? Who has access 
So that's what I'm saying. Like you, it's not like we are reading a boring political, you know, statements. It's like talking about show don't tell. Uh, that's what you do, right? Wow. Thank you. Thank you for that. <laughs> Oh, but but tell me more because you know the the thing about the water and the bodies and you know the the pestilence um, and even I, I, there is a part where that connects or you connected to God. So what is that? Can you tell us more about the process of defeating social injustice? Yeah. Without becoming predictable. Yeah. Well, um, I, for me, so the book was um, inspired by, you know, my own experience going to secondary school in Ghana. And the school that I went to had a major water crisis. Mm -hmm. And this water crisis became sort of, you know, a, a, a canvas that exposed the, you know, class of each of the students, because if you came from a family that could afford to transport water from the capital city to the school that we went to, then you had water and the water was padlocked in the, you know, headmistresses or the assistant headmistresses house. And I mean, so there, right there, you had water. But then there was, you know, if you didn't have water, there was theft. Mm -hmm. And so there was, it, it, it was a very complex situation. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, you know, when I was going through it, I didn't fully understand like, okay, water, you know, why isn't the water flowing the way it flows in the United States, you know, but when I was writing the book, I was thinking a lot about how like something like this, that again, this, because growing up in New York, I had no, I mean, I had some idea because my parents are from Ghana and there were certain things that we did that made me connected to, made me understand the connection between like, oh, these things don't just pop up on a shelf. Mm -hmm. However, um, when I was in Ghana, I was really confronted by the fact that, whoa, like every single thing that I took for granted was not something that you could take for granted. The, the, you had to work for everything. And so this, this idea of bringing up the fact that this girl who had come from the UK, she you know had all of these sort of creature comforts at her disposal, even though she wasn't from a wealthy background, and then she goes to Ghana and she is now thrust into a situation where something like water is not something that she can take for granted. Um, and it exposes her to these class differences and it exposes her to what would you do when you have to survive? Um, because I think that it's very easy to kind of look from the outside and say like, oh, those look what those poor people are doing to themselves or what, look what's happening in that poor country. But we when you are, exactly. But when you are in that situation where you are thirsty and you need to drink water or if, if you know, then you're going to do crazy things. And I remember like when I would be, when we were all at night, we would, we would padlock our buckets to the bed and pour 
Dettol and put period panties in the water just so that no one would steal it. And still people would steal the water. And then we would steal, I would steal. I would go at night, I'm like, I'm running low. I don't know when my grandmother's coming. At late at night, I would go with my cup and my bucket and would just steal, steal, steal. And it was just, you don't know what you will do unless you're in that situation where you have to survive. Um, so it was, I wanted that in that in there for that. Right. right. Um, but again, what amazes me is the way in which you thread these things through the narrative in a way that is not, you know, of course, doesn't give me the sense, oh, I'm just reading a pamphlet, you know, bringing conscious awareness to this or that. It's pure beauty. There is a lot of poetry in your book. So um, in both, both of them. So I, I thank you for, for writing them. And what, what's next for Nana? Thank you so much. Well, I, um, I just finished editing an anthology of African and diaspora voices. It's called Relations. And I love it. It's just um, writers um, from all over the continent um, contributed stories, essays, and poems. So I think it's a really cool kind of, I don't know, very cool um, examination of relations, relationships of all kinds, relations with family members, relations with yourself, relations there's infidelity, corruption, all of it. It's, it's, it's really um, cool and I'm so proud of it. And then I'm also um, working on a novel um, and I'm excited about that one too. And it's funny because you, um, as you were talking about um, Powder Necklace, I'm like, wow, the themes keep <laughs> recurring, <laughs> intergenerational trauma, <laughs> but, but in a way that I think is, um, is interesting, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> we have to write it until we feel that until we feel that we have said it all. Yeah. yeah. It's time to another for another theme. Is there anything I have not asked that you think is important for the audience to know about you and um other than you're an awesome, awesome human being and Aww. Um, what did I not? Is there any? I mean, I feel like you you said it all, and I'm you you brought tears to my eyes because I'm like, wow, that's so cool that um, you saw all of those things. I think sometimes as writers, and you know this, um, we create what we you know what's on our heart and what we believe is is good, and then we release it, and it has its own, you know it has its own relationship to you, the reader, and it has its own life. And so it just, it's incredibly gratifying that, you know, you were blessed by both books. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it just keeps, gives me the encouragement to keep going because, you know, it's hard. Powder Necklace came out in the year 2010. <laughs> so that's 12 years ago. And it, uh, there's been so much rejection in between. And so I've gone through a lot of questioning of myself and then sort of come to the other side, like, no, this is still who I am. This is still what I do. And um, and it's funny because Blue kind of came up, came about while I was experiencing so much rejection with my second novel. And this book was just such a delight. I, I was able to connect to something that fascinated me 
And the fact that it's out before my novel <laughs> just makes me so happy. And it makes me laugh that this journey is just, you just got to stay on the road, you know? So. Well, I'm looking forward to doing um, more with you and in, in blue, as I had said. So we'll see. We are going to put something and bring you to Connecticut to do something. But thank you so, so much for joining me. And thank you all for listening to What a Word is Worth. You can access today's interview at Anchor, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you are, if you found our program beneficial in any way, if you found something helpful, let us know. Um, subscribe to the channel and also leave us a review. I am with you in love and compassion always, always, always. <laughs>